Hi, and welcome to Bread. John's Gospel features seven sayings of Jesus which begin with I am. And they serve a singular purpose, to emphatically reveal Jesus' identity as the Son of God. This is a series about these saints. They confront us with the real Jesus and they invite us to meet with him. Because the Christian faith is not primarily a doctrine to believe or a moral code to follow or even an experience to participate in. It is a person to meet. And our hope is that you would meet the living Jesus. Enjoy. Uh, thank you, uh, Tavi and Ben. That was a little boy. Um, nice to see you all. Welcome uh, to Bread. We are in uh, the middle of a series on uh, the I Am sayings of Jesus, these seven sayings in the Gospel of John. Uh, they are um, uh, sort of signs of uh, his identity that go concurrently alongside uh, his seven signs of uh, the miraculous um, to kind of uh, reveal his divinity. And uh, today, I am the Good Shepherd, which runs uh, straight on after uh, what Raoul talked about last week, I am the gate uh, from John 10. And so without any further ado, Casey, I believe, is going to one clap for Casey, just the single clap. Uh, yes, Casey. Uh, uh, Casey's going to read from uh, John chapter 10, starting at verse 11. Um, I am not a professional actor like Adam, so everyone please manage your expectations. Um, okay, John 10:11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the words, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Very good. Thank, Thank you. you. Well much. done. Well done. Um, just a few kind of little points of order um, to start with. Uh, firstly, um, I just want to pick up on uh, those uh, prophetic words earlier. I just feel like uh, this is kind of partly what I'm talking about, of people feeling like they are in the middle of storms, um, in the middle of actual um, quite dramatic and difficult situations. Um, but the, the passage that Casey read and the, the words that um, both Joe and Hannah had about the, um, the strength of God uh, not to necessarily take those storms away, but to be with you in them. I just feel like this is what God wants to say um, to you. Uh, secondly, uh, I, um, I'm going to start a Bible study. Do you want to come? 
It's going to be amazing. Uh, it's at 7.30 on Tuesday mornings in the office, 5631 Hollywood Boulevard, 7.30. Uh, it says 7 there. It's not at 7. Don't turn up at 7. It's at 7.30. Uh, in the office, I will provide coffee. You will provide um, delicious treats. And we'll do a little Bible study. We're going to start in Colossians. We'll do this for a bit. Good? Good. Uh, also, thank you so much for everyone's generosity uh, in giving to um, our appeal uh, last week for uh, the house church movement in Maui. We raised around $800 from that last week, so thank you very much. It's going to make a big difference to them. You're very kind. Uh, fourth point. Um, in John's Gospel, John always says the Jews uh, like some sort of disparaging all group together Jews. Uh, he doesn't mean that. He means uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, those who reject Jesus. I just thought I should clarify that because down the years, good old Christians have uh, been able to use that as, oh, clearly God doesn't like all Jews. Uh, that's not the case. Jesus was Jewish. Glad to clarify that. Now, <laughs> let's get on, shall we? Let me put the passage in a bit of context. Um, as we know from last week, what Jesus has done is he's just healed a man born blind from birth. And when this man's friends see him, he says, uh, we need to take him to the synagogue so that the Pharisees can inspect him and see what's happened. Uh, the Pharisees argue with him, and ultimately they throw him out of the synagogue. Jesus then steps in to confront them, and our passage that, Stacey, uh, that Casey read so well uh, is at the end of his little speech against the Pharisees. Let me tell you a little bit about the Pharisees, because often I think people have a sort of vague understanding, um, but it's not always quite um, completely accurate uh, about what the Pharisees are like, maybe that they've got from their childhood. The Pharisees were not, as commonly misunderstood, the priests of Israel. They were, in fact, lay people. All Pharisees, uh, well, not all Pharisees, but Pharisees were lay people. Uh, and anyone, therefore, could be a Pharisee. As a group, they were actually quite diverse in their beliefs and practices. But what united them was they saw themselves as sort of the self-appointed religious and moral flag wavers of Israel. The Pharisees were convinced that the reason that God seemingly had abandoned his people to Roman occupation was because the people had given up being pure had given up on the law of Moses, had given up living the lives that they were supposed to live. Uh, and so the Pharisees took the strictest of purity laws from the Torah, even those originally meant only to apply to the priests in the temple on holy days, and applied them to everyone, everywhere, for all of time, every day. To be a Pharisee, therefore, was to sort of devote yourself to not just following every minutiae of the Torah all the time, but to also add cautionary rules upon cautionary rules designed to stop someone before they even had the chance of getting to the law and therefore possibly breaking it. So they had rules for everything. Even in later tradition, um, the rabbinic uh, teaching that kind of followed on from the Pharisees, they would have rules about how many peas you could depod on any given day. Uh, I can't remember exactly how many it is. I think it's eight. Uh, eight peas that you could depod. So, therefore, when the Pharisees are confronted by this man who is born blind and can now see, the Pharisees do not concentrate on the fact that this was a blind man who now miraculously can see 
everything. They don't concentrate on the miraculous, wonderful, joyful, praise-filled thing that has happened, that this man who had never seen a sunset before, had never seen a bird, had never seen uh, the sunrise, had never seen the ocean, can now see everything. They don't concentrate on that. They concentrate on the fact that Jesus has healed this man on the Sabbath, the day of rest. And miraculous healing looks a bit like work to them, and work on the day of rest is not allowed. So the discourse goes on and on, as um, Raoul looked at last week, and it comes to a head when the former blind guy effectively says, you Pharisees, what, like, what is wrong with you? I was blind and now I can see. If Jesus wasn't from God, he couldn't do anything, but why can't you see that he clearly is from God? Because I've got my sight back. Isn't it amazing? And at this point, the Pharisees get enraged. They check the former blind man out of the synagogue and say this, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us when your whole life is based on the belief that goodness is about the fulfillment of rules and standards it is inevitable that those who do not meet your standards must be to you not good or not good enough and those who are not good enough it is easy to look down on to reject them or to demonize and this is precisely what the Pharisees do to this man. So as I said, the passage that Casey read is at the end of Jesus' now long and heated confrontation with them. And it happens during the Feast of Hanukkah. Now Hanukkah was a, a celebration and a remembrance of how the Jewish people, led by the Maccabeans, revolted. And they kicked out the Greek influences from the temple some years earlier. Alexander and his happy band of Greeks had desecrated the temple. They'd smeared it with pig's blood, they'd banned Jewish rituals, they'd burned scripture scrolls, and they'd put pagan idols in the temple, all deeply, deeply offensive and sacrilegious and blasphemous to the Israelites. But they were overcome, the Greeks were, and the temple in 165 BC was rededicated to Yahweh. Now, it's important in their celebrating of this uh, ceremony, this festival of Hanukkah, because each time they would ask themselves difficult questions. And the questions they would ask them was, how did this ever happen? How on earth did the leaders of Israel allow the most important thing, in our not just in our whole culture, but in the whole universe, be desecrated in such a way? Where were those who were supposed to be the shepherds of God's people? What were they doing? How were they looking after us? How were they keeping us close to God and keeping us safe? So they would look back, but they would also look at the present, and they go, what on earth are our leaders doing now? Are they doing a good job? That's what you would do during the festival. So in the mind of any God-fearing Jew at the time, it would be, how are our leaders doing? And so it's very much the focus of what Jesus uh, has at the forefront of his mind. And so although not explicitly mentioned, I think it's fair enough to assume that Jesus wouldn't just have the Pharisees in mind, although he does, and he clearly directs uh, his um, kind of response to them, but also all of Israel's leaders, and probably most notably the Sadducees. Um, they were like the aristocrats of Israel. They were often of priestly blood or priests themselves. But whereas the Pharisees fixated on the law, the Sadducees actually had quite a, a liberal view of the law. 
In fact, uh, they wouldn't really allow the law to penetrate or infiltrate uh, their daily lives other than during holy periods. And so that allowed them a great deal of freedom. They could have uh, political and social freedom. And often the Sadducees had no problem, therefore, cozying up to their Roman occupiers. They did deals with them, and they partied with them, and they compromised with them. They gave up part of their Jewish identity for power and influence. And so it's all these leaders, the leaders of Israel, during the festival of Hanukkah, to whom Jesus speaks. And he says something along the lines of, you Pharisees, you Sadducees, you leaders of Israel, you were supposed to look after people. You were supposed to look after the sheep of God, but you haven't. You have traded caring and healing and loving my people for a set of deathly, burdensome rules. You're, you lord your moral superiority over them. You've robbed people of life. You've killed their joy. You've destroyed them with the weight of religious expectation. You were supposed to point them towards God, but you've pointed them towards yourselves instead. A dereliction of duty has marked your leadership. You've compromised yourself. You've gone after riches and power and pagan influence. You have failed the people. But, says Jesus, now this whole abuse is going to end. Because now, says Jesus, I'm here. And I, Jesus, am the true shepherd of the people. And I am leading them away from you into a whole new world where this pattern of thieving and robbery stops. And as Jesus is saying this, the Pharisees and the Sadducees would have had a very famous passage from the uh, Jewish scriptures written years and years before the event ringing in their ears. In fact, it's a passage that was always read every year at the festival of Hanukkah. Have you ever had something quoted back to you that you'd kind of forgotten about? I don't have a brilliant memory. Uh, I am married to someone who does have a brilliant memory. And sometimes it's really helpful, and quite a lot of the time it's quite annoying. I love you. Uh, but she will remember when I've said things that I haven't remembered, and she will remember when I've said things and then I haven't done them. Uh, it's not always very helpful. It is very helpful. This, this is what's going on for the teachers of the law, for the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the leaders of Israel. Ringing in their ears is something that has been told to them years and years ago. From Ezekiel chapter 34, this is what the Lord says, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You've not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound the injured. You've not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You've ruled them harshly and brutally. I, says the Lord, am against the shepherds and I will hold them accountable. I will remove them from tending the flock. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. Jesus is clearly saying, your time's up. The pattern of abuse is over. I'm here. I'm God. I'm going to be the shepherd. 
we had our um, first week of the Alpha course on Wednesday, which is great. I love Alpha. If you weren't able to be there, but you'd like to be, um, you have, uh, you're very welcome to come this week, uh, 7.30 on Wednesday. It's a great time. But as part of the sort of introductory first week, we asked people uh, just what was your experience of religion or faith uh, growing up? And um, there are, of course, a whole range of different experiences from none at all to every Sunday, Monday, Wednesday, whatever, all of it. And not all of it was negative, lots of uh, positive things as well, but there was actually a sort of tinge of negativity to most of what people said. From as simple as it was just really boring growing up, or it was totally impenetrable, I didn't understand it, to I got to kind of peek behind the curtain of church leadership and actually saw that it was pretty gross, the compromise and the interest in money and, and uh, uh, celebrity and status. To, I was told I was never really welcome because of who I am. To, my gender prohibited me from leadership. A friend of ours um, a while back had been thinking about getting baptized, kind of deliberating over it for a long time. Uh, and he finally determined actually he did really want to do it. Uh, a public declaration in front of people to say, hey, I, I believe in God's grace. I'm the recipient of it. But when um, he arrived to line up, to be baptized in front of a packed church. He was told that he couldn't be baptized because in the church's mind, he was just too simple. Isn't that heartbreaking? Can you imagine Jesus ever going, I'm so sorry, you're just too simple. Not for me. I'm currently reading a book called Losing Our Religion by Russell Moore. He used to serve on the board of um, the Southern Baptist Convention, and he's the current editor of Christianity Today. Now, I've got to say, I disagree with him about so much theologically, so many things. But I do have a huge amount of respect for him, and particularly what he says in this book. It is basically an altar call for the conservative religious right to refine the heart of the gospel. It is basically an altar call to come back to Jesus. And because he exposes just the compromise that so many have um, kind of gone down uh, towards uh, nationalism, political influence, moral posturing, and the excuse of abuse. And he should know, really, because he was basically ousted from the board of the SBC because he had the temerity to speak up for those who had been sexually abused at the hands of pastors. And the rest of the board just wanted to sweep it under the carpet, saying we mustn't let anything come against Christian unity, so let's just not talk about this. Good on him. It made me think, I wonder what Jesus might have to say to the shepherds of his people now. And I know this is quite heavy. I'm not really particularly interested in pointing out uh, other churches' problems. We've got enough problems of our own. Thank you very much. We'll just concentrate on those. Let's not worry too much about what's going outside. And after all, Hannah and I are church leaders. So whatever Jesus has got to say to anyone, he's got to say to us. So you can relax. We're in trouble. Nevertheless, it's not me speaking. It's Jesus speaking, and Jesus takes the time to highlight the problems of the leaders of Israel because he's saying this has got to stop, and I'm here to make it stop. 
So I wonder, I wonder whether Jesus might say this to the leaders of his church. You shepherds of your people, of my people, I think your time's up because you've excused racism and you've promoted homophobia and you've become obsessed with money and power and greed and position and celebrity and you've compromised yourselves and my church by cozying up to greed and you've aligned yourself with politicians who spout hate and division. You were supposed to look after my sheep, my beloved children. You were supposed to keep them safe and close to me but you've traded preaching a relationship with me for a set of moral codes. You've taken the presence of my spirit and exchanged it for fear. You've made people fearful, fearful of hell, fearful of me, fearful of you, fearful of themselves, fearful of never being good enough or being rejected once and for all by me. And some of you have actually even stopped talking about me altogether. You've stopped talking about Jesus, the Son of God, the only begotten Son, the one true God, for fear of offending people. Instead, you've made it all about self, self-help, self-actualization, self-worship, so your time is up. I think that might be what he might say. I don't know. I made it up. I know that there are people here who have first-hand experience of um, trauma at the hands of church. I know it's not everyone, but it is someone. Can I say thank you for being here? I know it takes a lot of courage. And I also understand that with church trauma, what's so painful about it is it so often mixes everything up because it's impossible to separate the actual one true G.O.D. from people who purport to come in his name. And therefore, it's quite difficult to see one for the other. But can you see that this is precisely what Jesus is doing here? He's separating him self off from all of that. Verse 12. The hired hand is not the shepherd. And he does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. He's saying, that's not me. Whatever happened to you, that's not me. I'm the good shepherd. So can I encourage you? Can you do everything you possibly can to see Jesus not part of the problem, but as part of the solution? Otherwise, you will just remain stuck. I understand it's totally understandable, but you'll remain stuck. Stuck in the resentment and the pain. What Jesus wants to do is to lead you away from all of that so that he can reconstitute you, so that he can heal you, so that he can be the good shepherd. Verse 14. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Jesus did not come to found a new religion. He did not come to build a moral code. He did not come to create a new belief system. He most certainly did not come to lord his authority over us or to fill us with fear. He came for intimacy with his people, the same intimacy that he enjoys with his Father in heaven. That's how extraordinary it is. The same relationship, perfect in unity. He comes to say, come on in. Come and be intimate with me and my Father in heaven. 
Come and be made new. It's why we put such an emphasis on praying for people. I know people are a bit scared about coming to the front and maybe people will think that they're awful. You're not awful. You're just hungry. Just be hungry. But it's where people can actually experience God's love. It's one of the primary places that they can experience God's love and his, his care and his healing and his restoration. Because we all leak the spirit, the presence of God. We all need to be filled up. And he's the good shepherd, not just a shepherd, the good shepherd. So surrounding Jerusalem, you wouldn't have to go very far uh, until you're right in the heart of the desert. It stretches for thousands and thousands of miles for, uh, over what is now Saudi Arabia and uh, Iraq. Villages uh, in the area would use it for rearing sheep. But it, only for a few months would it rain in the year. And suddenly all these desert plants would sprout up and spring up and there would be great pasture for the sheep. But for the remainder of the year, it was inhospitable. Hot, arid, deathly. Water is scarce, food is even scarcer, and there is danger around every corner. So good shepherds would be excellent at finding food and water and safe places for their sheep. Outside is a desperate place, but without the voice of, and the guidance of the shepherd, the sheep wouldn't last a minute against the thieves and the wild animals. And so what shepherds would do is they would build pens with walls made of stone and bramble to keep out animals and thieves. And often these pens would kind of be backed up against a cliff. And then the shepherd would stand out in front of them at the gate, the only way in and out of the pen. You have to go through the shepherd to get to the sheep. And so as uh, Raoul mentioned last week, Jesus is not just the good shepherd, he's also the gate, the only way in. And the reason he's the way, the only way in, is because he's the one who, verse 15, lays down his life for the sheep. When I was at a university, I was not a Christian. Uh, I called myself an atheist. I probably was a bit agnostic, but I basically didn't want anything to do with it. And I lived entirely for myself. I spent most of the time uh, drunk and disorderly. That's what I did with my degree. Uh, and I wasn't very nice to people. I didn't treat them very well. I um, lived just for pleasure and my own enjoyment of life. I, I had a few friends, but I think uh, they probably thought now and again I was pretty awful. Uh, and I, I guess I didn't like myself very much either. I just didn't really think there was any point in life, so I just sort of carried on. But there was this uh, postgraduate student who came to my college after my first year. And uh, he actually knew my family a little bit, uh, and I knew him a little bit. Uh, he was a Christian, older guy. And now and again, we would bump into each other because uh, we shared a lecture, I think. Uh, he didn't know me that well, but I knew that um, how I was going about my life kind of perturbed him quite a lot. Um, I was quite public in my self-implosions, just to let you know. But he never said anything about it, and he was always very kind to me. Kind of randomly, years and years later, I'd become a Christian, I was working for a church, and I was having a drink in a pub with um, a friend of mine. And in the middle of London, uh, in walked this guy, Richard. 
Uh, totally, I hadn't seen him for years, and I actually haven't seen him since, but he walked into the pub. And it was great to see him, and I, I thought I should tell him. I said, do you know, I, I've become a Christian, and I work for a church now, and um, it's amazing. And he said, um, do you know, uh, during that time, I don't know, I, I've just felt drawn to you. Do you know, every, every evening, I would pray for you at university. And I actually, I would weep over you because I really, um, it really hurt to see you hurting yourself. And I prayed every day. I thought, that's incredible. What kindness. What selflessness. Did, barely knew me. And it made me think that's like Jesus, who weeps for us and prays for us and lays his, day, lays his life down for us. In his selfless death, he kills off all the things that are hurting us. This is the story of the gospel. Jesus coming for broken people, people who have been abused, people who are in trouble themselves, and he lays down his life so that we can trample on him and walk through him into life. Now, my self-destruction was entirely that, self-inflicted. But some of us have had things stolen from us that is not our fault at all. Our sense of self-worth has been robbed, or our joy, or our ability to relate to one another. Our courage, our hope, our trust of other people, our innocence. And some of it, really sadly, has been robbed by those closest to us who really should know better. Our parents, our caregivers, our pastors, our friends, our lovers. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and says, give the hurt and pain to me. Whatever storms you're going through, allow me to be strong for you, and I will give you my peace and my life in all its fullness. So can I ask you a couple of difficult questions? Is there stuff that you are struggling to move past? Stuff that's happened to you? Would you like today to be the day where the moving past with Jesus begins? Because otherwise you will always remain stuck. Secondly, difficult question, have you become a Pharisee? Have you become sanctimonious and morally superior? Just out of interest, who thinks what the world needs now is a few more sanctimonious Christians? But have you become like that? Do you constantly actually, and you can't help yourself, but you just see the worst in other people? Do you spend your time just judging everyone else? What this will inevitably mean is that no one's good enough for you. And perhaps deep down you'll think, I'm not good enough for me either. So you may try harder and harder and harder and become more and more judgmental. Or you'll think, if only everyone could be as good as me, and you'll become proud and aloof. All this does is rob us for life. And Jesus saying, time's up. I'm coming here to free you from all of that. Or have you become a Sadducee? Have you compromised? Have you just become selfish? What can I get out of this relationship? How can this serve me? Me first. No one else is going to look after me, so I need to look after myself. 
Jesus says to all of us, I'm laying down my life for you. So you can be free from all that judgment and all that self-relatedness. You do not need to be superior because you know that all you need is the unconditional love of Christ. That none of us actually measures up, but we love just the same. And you don't need to try and make a name for yourself like everyone else in this city, constantly striving and going for it because you already know exactly who you are. Because the King of Heaven, who came down and healed and restored the universe, tells you exactly who you are. So don't run away from him. Run into him. He's the good shepherd and he loves you. Amen. Let us sing a song. Maybe that one that was nice that we did. Uh, that one that you wrote. Yeah, that's a nice one. Uh, and let's stand and sing this song. And then we'll have an opportunity to pray for people.